Father, thank you for all the gifts of the Spirit evident in this room, for the prayers and the worship and the reading and the teaching of Scripture, for those who contribute in their song and their leadership qualities, in gifts of whatever kind that may come into the body. We thank you, Father, that you and your wisdom chose to bring up a body of believers, none of whom by themselves, Father, can do all that you require, none of whom by themselves have all the answers, have all the wisdom, have all the skills, so that we must, by necessity, join together, be united, be as one in the Spirit. Thank you, Father, for that wisdom, for it makes for so much more joy than to try to do these things by ourselves. And we ask, Father, that in the Word this morning, you would continue to school us, to teach us up in the righteousness that is Christ, and show us, Father, how we may be a better servant still. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we began chapter 18 last week, I mentioned last week that there were two outstanding issues in Abraham's relationship with God that God wanted to resolve at this point in his relationship with Abraham before the promised child of Isaac arrives, which is just around the corner, we know now, less than a year away. The first issue was one of Sarah herself, and that's what we studied last week. The issue there was Sarah's faith or lack thereof, as we saw in the scriptures last week. Because up till last week, up until chapter 18, we've been watching Abraham grow in his walk and in his faith and his reliance on God. But then in chapter 18, it became apparent that we've not yet heard anything about Sarah herself, not about her faith, about her relationship. We've seen her following Abraham obediently. We even looked at First Peter's letter last week in which he made note of the fact that she is a good example of inner beauty who would follow her husband willingly and show obedience and respect for him. But nonetheless, her obedience to her husband is not a substitute for her faith in God's word. One is not equal to the other. And up until this chapter, there was no record that Sarah had ever heard the words of the Lord herself. All we know, probably, is that she heard what Abraham had chosen to relate to her about what he had heard. But from what we see in the text of Scripture, there was no personal appearance from God to Sarah until the beginning of chapter 18. But in chapter 18, for the first time, the Lord sitting outside the tent with Sarah behind the tent wall, hiding, but listening, reveals something to her in his words. And in her presence, he revealed her unbelief by how she responded to what she heard God telling her. And though she initially tried to lie in that moment, remember last week when she says, oh, I didn't laugh. And God said, oh, no, 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 you did laugh. Even though she was trying to hide all of her unbelief, the Lord calls her out in that encounter and reveals the conviction that only the Spirit can bring. And as we studied the book of Hebrews last week, we learned that it was in this moment that faith arrived for Sarah. First, the conviction, then the repentance, followed by the writer of Hebrews saying definitively in chapter 11 that it was by her faith that she gained the ability to conceive. Well, knowing that conception is a nine-month process, and this is at one year prior to the birth here in chapter 18, it must have been that between now and three months from now, she gained the ability to conceive by her faith. This process of God convicting her of her unbelief was met by faith ultimately in God's Word. So now... Abraham's faith, which we've seen all along, is matched in his wife, who now we can call a woman of faith. And now, therefore, into this family of believers, God can deliver the promised child. Isn't God good 
to ensure that Isaac would come into a family in which both parents had that relationship. Now, that's the first issue. The second issue is the one we address today in chapter 18, the next part of the chapter. And that second issue is Abraham's lack of appreciation for the full nature and character of God. Up to this point, in all of the story of Abraham, back to when he was just Abram, God has revealed only one side of his character, one side of his nature. Abraham has experienced God in mercy when God calls him out of Ur. We saw Abraham experience God's grace when God pronounced Abraham righteous on the basis of faith. He experienced God's faithfulness when God was good to rescue Abraham and Sarah, even as they disobeyed and went into Egypt. And yet, as they leave, he gives them even more provision and blessing out of Egypt. That's God's faithfulness. And lastly, he experienced God's goodness in the way that he is going to receive not only the inheritance of a land, but also a son. God's goodness. He's seen God from that side, front to back, the whole way through. But what Abraham has yet to see, what Abraham has yet to fully understand, is that the God he worships and serves is also a God of justice. He's a God of judgment. And, as necessary, he's a God of wrath for sin. Without a healthy perspective of who God is, both sides of this God that he serves, he and his family would fail to properly appreciate and understand the seriousness of God's word. And that's a concern for a God who has said, through this man and his seed, I will raise up a people and a nation to myself. Those are high expectations, but holiness itself is the ultimate expectation. And if this man is to promote holiness into the line of God that he is about to create through his seed, he must understand the God he serves fully. Both sides. So as we pick up again here in the chapter that we're reading, the Lord now unfolds before Abraham's eyes a plan which will reveal this other side to his character and nature. And he's going to give Abraham a chance to participate with him in this plan so that Abraham might learn through that relationship more of who God is. Read with me in chapter 18, verse 16. Then the men rose up from there, and and as you know from last week, they're sitting at the tent eating with Abraham. Abraham. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation? And in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. After the meal, reset your mind. You're back in the scene. They've been sitting outside this tent where Abraham served him. And so now the meal is over and the Lord and the two angels, and we know already these are not three men, merely men. Moses is continuing to call them men, but we know that this is the Lord and two angels. And they are preparing now to move away and go on to their next destination, which is Sodom. And we're told Abraham moves with them. That would have been to be expected. This is just good hospitality. In the same way that if a guest were sitting at your table in your home and it was time for them to leave, you would no more sit at your table and tell them, well, the front door is at the other end of the house. Why don't you let yourself out? then you would expect Abram to sit at his tent waiting for these men to walk away. Instead, he walks them to the edge of his, of his encampment, probably to the edge of where his animals were grazing, as a way of showing hospitality. And as they walk, Moses records these words. And what's interesting, of course, is these words are not spoken to Abraham. They're thought 
I guess is the closest we can understand. They're thought by God. But by the Spirit, God revealed these things to Moses so that he could record them for us. And by the way, that shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, that's no different than the way Moses has received all the details of the story of Abraham, right? I mean, whether it's something in God's head or something that happened in history, Moses wasn't there for either of them. So it's the same process of revelation, God speaking these things to Moses by the Spirit so that he would record them. But it's no less remarkable here that what God has chosen to do is articulate his purpose to us, the reader, by this mechanism, by this tool of his thoughts in the moment. Now, as students of Scripture, whenever we get to a point like this, our responsibility is always to ask the same question. Why did God want us to know these thoughts when we understand that he didn't even give Abraham these things? So why does he want us to have this understanding? The thought, by the way, here is phrased in the form of a question, you know, shall I hide? But since the question was never really asked, God never spoke it out loud to Abraham, then we know this is not really a question that was expecting an answer. It's a statement. It's a statement phrased in the form of a question. I want to actually rephrase this here in a minute to show you what I think is actually being asked. But you can say it very simply, at least for now. He's not saying, shall I hide? He's saying, I want to show. I want to show this to Abraham. Now, what exactly is God trying to show Abraham? Well, God gives us the answer in verses 18 and 19. And this is where I said I need to rephrase what was actually said in those two verses. And I pray I do this accurately. You you can be the judge of that. Uh, But this is what I think the Lord was actually saying by the way it's phrased here in the Bible. God begins, Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. And through that nation, I will bless all the nations on the earth. I have chosen him to raise up this nation. And by his experiences and example, I will train up his household and all those who will follow. Together, they must understand the way of the Lord is both a way of righteousness and justice so that they may receive all that I have promised. Now, again, be your own judge by the spirit as to whether I captured that accurately. But I feel that that's generally the thrust of what he's saying, because his point is being articulated here so that we'll understand what's about to happen next. Why is it that he's about to do the things he does next? The key here is the two halves that are defined as the way of the Lord. Look in verse 19. What are the two halves of the way of the Lord? The two halves, the two definitional halves for the way of the Lord are righteousness and justice. God is a God of righteousness, meaning he is perfect in nature. He is perfect in thought, perfect in deed, always doing what is good. That's what it means to be righteous. Perfect as well in mercy and in love and in blessing. He can do no wrong. But that's half of God. The other half is he is a God of justice. Now, justice means he is not only perfect in those other things, but he is perfect in judgment. He is perfect in wrath for sin, never overlooking injustice. It's interesting how much I think the culture we live in today has lost sight of what perfect justice really means. Perfect justice literally is every person who is guilty getting the punishment they are due every time without exception. And by the same token, Every innocent person being exonerated every time perfectly. Sort of like our court system works today, right? 
No, human courts don't work that way. That's why we lose sight sometimes of what real justice requires. We tend to have a soft heart sometimes, or at other times a heart that won't forgive. We sometimes want to see the guilty go free. And sometimes we apply too much punishment to someone who doesn't quite deserve it. We we go both directions. God never does that. God is perfect in justice at all times. God's perfection and his righteousness compel him, compel him to bring a just penalty against every sin in his creation. If he were to overlook even one sin, he is unjust and imperfect and his character won't allow that. So God's people have to understand and appreciate both these sides of God if we're truly to know him. Now, the gospel message is at the core of this discussion because the gospel message at its essence is a message of judgment and mercy, judgment and mercy. We have sinned. We have sinned against God. He must judge our sin. He must judge all sin. And there must be a payment for the debt that we have before God by our sin. There cannot be an exception to that. But because he is also merciful and loving, he made a payment available on our behalf through his son, Christ Jesus. Christ, we know, lived a perfect, righteous life that pleased a righteous father. And also in his death, he paid a debt on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. So he had no sin of his own. He lived a perfectly sinless life then took the death that we deserve so that he could pay for our sins, though he had none of his own. And in that way, God could be both, the scripture says, just and the justifier of those who are sinful. That's the story of the gospel. That's the full gospel, by the way, the very full gospel story. But increasingly, churches, in my experience, preach only one half of that gospel. There are some who are preaching only the love side, as I call it. The love half, the mercy half. They talk of God's mercy, but they don't acknowledge his wrath for sin. And they conveniently like to not draw attention to the depravity of our hearts, nor to the holiness of God, nor to the terrible price that sin requires, nor to the eternal death that is the outcome of sin. They ignore all of that. They give no attention to the cross. They don't give any attention to the atoning work of his blood. They don't talk about God's expectations for his people, that he has bought us with a price. And we must put aside sin and live a life that is holy and pleasing because of what he has done for us. They they don't talk about any of those things. What they do talk about, in my experience, is they preach a God who loves everyone regardless of the condition of their heart. And he wants us all to be rich. That's another one of late. And he wants all of us to have our best life now. And he wants all of us to have our own personal glory instead of God's glory. That is half of the gospel. And as Paul would say, it is no gospel at all. But there is the other side out there as well. The other side preaches of God's justice and wrath for sin, but they don't talk about the grace of God's forgiveness and mercy. This is the message, by the way, that comes out of a heart that wants to expose and condemn sin. And they overlook the righteousness that comes not by works, but by faith that is given to us as a result of faith in Christ's work. And they typically, this is again, these are stereotypes, but typically this half emphasizes God's judgment so much that they themselves will start to aspire to the role of judge and do it on his behalf and step into our lives and become fruit inspectors and legalists. And now they want to know what you're doing and and why. In place of God's mercy and grace, they teach legalism because they confuse 
following human rules with pleasing God by faith. So we don't want either one, do we? We don't want a a gospel that says God is all about love, but we forget that his holiness has a price for sin that God paid for us on the cross. Nor do we want to be the kind of place that only thinks about the fact that sin has a judgment required and we're going to carry out that judgment on God's behalf. I've been in both. I don't want either. They're unbalanced messages. They're not the gospel. And I would also tell you that in the long run, they don't yield true disciples. There can be Christians in those places, certainly, by God's grace. But they're not being schooled up. They're not being discipled properly when they're hearing one side of the message. Those who preach only love without justice will attract unbelievers who seek approval for their sinful lifestyles and the desires of their flesh. And they want God's acceptance without having to repent of their sin. And the other side will attract people who want to be saved by their works. They don't want to humble their hearts and they don't want to rely on Christ's work. But what God wants in this moment through Abraham and his family is a people that understand and teach the full nature of God, the full message of the gospel. They probably didn't use the word gospel in Abraham's day, but it's not important what they called it. It's the message of who God was truly. So how is he going to accomplish this plan? How does he get Abraham to see the full side of God? Well, simply put, through prayer in action. God's going to reveal his intentions to Abraham's heart what he plans to do, and he's going to look for Abraham to act through prayer to intercede. And in the process of those prayers, God does a work in Abraham to teach him something about himself. Look at verse 20 through 22. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. So by Moses' writing, we got to hear what God was thinking. Now we get to see what he actually says to Abraham. He announces, I'm going to my next visitation. This one will be in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, I've heard these towns have great sin and I want to see for myself. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, they're infamous I mean, even for many who don't know the whole historical story, they they probably understand enough just by the names. And that's a testimony to the depravity of this place. Archaeologically speaking, these are two sister towns. They often go together in this way, Sodom and Gomorrah, because for the most part, they were really just one town. They were so close together. And they were in the southern fertile valley that sits at the very bottom of the Dead Sea today. In fact, we really don't know where they were. It's, it's, it's interesting, we can't really find them today, and that's a testimony to what actually happens in this story. They were so utterly destroyed that there's virtually no evidence that they ever existed. They were renowned both in their day and obviously still today for their depravity, but in particular for unnatural sexual practices. Of course, even the word sodomy today comes from the name of Sodom for that very reason. So that's their testimony, and it continues even down into today. You may also remember this is the place that Abraham's nephew Lot chose to settle when he separated from Abraham. As Abraham offered the opportunity for Lot to select any part of the land where he would settle, and then Abraham would go the other way, Lot opened his eyes, looked up, saw the well-watered area here in the southern part of the Dead Sea Valley, and he said, oh, that's where I want to go, out there by Sodom. And then he pitches his tent outside the city. Later we find out when the kings of the north came in and captured that area, they had Lot captured along with the rest of the city, which told us Lot was living in the city. So he'd moved from outside to inside the city. 
And so he's a part of this town now. And Abraham obviously would know that about his own nephew. And with that backdrop, here's the Lord now getting ready to walk away from Abraham. And he says out loud to Abraham, I've heard about the sin of this city and how great it is. And I intend to go find out for myself. Now, the Hebrew words for exceedingly great and grave, they carry a lot of meaning. That's not evident in the English. In fact, the word in Hebrew, for example, for great in this case is actually the word that means numerous as in quantity. So he says, I've heard there is a lot of sin. And then the word for grave has a very interesting word in Hebrew. It means abounding with honor. It means respected. That's literally what the word means. But taken together, here's what the Lord just said about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says the perversions of those cities have become commonplace. Everyone's doing it. And honored and respected. Everyone says it's okay. Everyone's doing it and everyone approves of it. And to the Lord... That's a problem. More than just the sin in itself, it's a problem when the culture says, let's all do it and let's all accept it. We should take note of any time a culture begins to practice and accept sinful perversions, they are ripe for God's intervention. Now, whether he chooses or not to intervene, that's a matter for his own purposes and and his own timing. But if he should delay to do to a culture what he does do here, That shouldn't offer us much consolation, especially not for the sinner, because it's only a matter of time. Whether it's at their death and their judgment or whether it's at the Lord's coming, if they're still alive, either way, it's not going to be good. And in this case, the Lord decides that today is the day he's going to bring earthly judgment against this particular place because they have reached this point of depravity. And so just like in the questions he asked in his head in verse 17 and 18, now he asks a question out loud, but the same analysis applies. We know he doesn't ask questions because he lacks information. I mean, honestly, God has no doubt about what's going on in the city. There's nothing that's outside his knowledge. So why would he go to the effort to announce to Abraham, much less to send messengers into the city, to find something out that he already knows? Well, we've said this many times before, right? The point isn't for lack of knowledge. The point is to teach something to the audience. And in the case of the audience here, particularly, it's Abraham and then by extension to us. He wants to accomplish a work in Abraham. And we can see that in the way the Lord sends those messengers to investigate, look at the scene in your mind's eye. There was four of them. Now there's just two. Abraham and the Lord. And you can almost feel in the moment how the Lord has sent these two men away, these two angels away with this mission so that what's left behind is Abraham and the Lord standing there. The whole moment has been orchestrated so that the conversation that's about to take place takes place. And that's what the Lord wanted. Before we look at that exchange, I want you to take a moment here to notice how much the Lord loves his children and desires a relationship with them. Do you see how he's working everything here for Abraham's benefit, for this purpose, for this moment, for this conversation? He is planned from the visit, from the beginning of this visit, to expose Abraham to God's work, to his own plan here on earth. He visited Abraham. He ate with him. He walked with him. And now he reveals his heart for justice. Now, we know, obviously, the Lord did not need to do any of those things. He didn't need to visit. He didn't need to eat. He didn't need to walk. He didn't need to talk. He could have shown up 
with the blink of an eye with two angels and, and done what he needed to do in Sodom and never have involved Abraham with a minute of it. True? I mean, if his goal was to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, that goal didn't depend on any of these other activities, did it? The Lord chose, on the other hand, to work with Abraham. And look at Abraham for his part. He received the Lord graciously, gladfully. He ate with the Lord. He walked with the Lord. And now he's listening to the voice of the Lord. What's fascinating with, to me about this exchange, even as we get into the early stages of it, is how much everything in this story has been orchestrated by God's purposes and by his work to picture the way he works with all his children throughout all of time and including those of us today in the church. As Christians, we could go through the New Testament today easily and find many times where the instructions to the church echo this exact same pattern. Receive the Lord. Today, when we say receive the Lord, we mean to fellowship with him through the spirit in our hearts by faith and then through water baptism as a confirmation of our faith and then through fellowship in the body of Christ. Receive the Lord. Be a part of his family. To eat with the Lord is for us today the communion meal, which becomes our remembrance of his sacrifice on the cross. But that's our communion with him as much as we have opportunity in this day as we wait for his physical return. We walk with the Lord, both physically and metaphorically. We walk with him in the way the spirit is with us everywhere we go. And we walk with him in the sense of seeking his counsel in his word and obeying it. And I hope I can say we listen. We listen to the Lord as much as we give Attention to the Spirit in our time of study, in our time of prayer, in the counsel of others in the church, and the godliness of their counsel. These are the ways we listen. So the parallels are all over the place. In this one moment, Abraham shows us how that looks. But what is the effect of it all? What's the outcome? Well, where do we find Abraham right now? Standing next to the Lord in a position where the Lord can invite him into his work and be trained up by it. If any of those earlier steps had been left out, where would Abraham be right now? In the story we just read, I can't see them being in the same position, can you? If these disciplines are lacking in our life, then the work of the Lord is likely to go on around us, but without us. God, we know from his own word, is dependent on no one. The fact that he is dependent on no one, though, does not mean he doesn't want to work with people. But it's because of that that God wants to work through us, because by our weakness, he is seen to be strong. He goes, in fact, out of his way to include children in his work, because that's the heart of a father. You may have heard me tell this story on occasions in the past, but I think in some ways hearing it a second time is helpful anyway. But in this context, particularly the story of the father who has that young son and the father wanted to go out and complete a project in his garage on one Saturday afternoon. And it's an old car. It needed some engine repair, and he's been putting it off. And now's the day, and he has the time. And throughout this man's lifetime of experience working on cars and on engines, he's learned personally a lot of valuable lessons through that work. He's learned patience. I don't know if you work on cars, if you have some other similar hobby. I've done that a little in the past, and I can tell you that one of the things you learn very quickly when you're struggling to fix something on an engine, is patience. Patience to get the right technique or to find the right tool or not to rush into something before you know what you're doing. The father's learned attention to detail. He's learned how to organize his work, how to organize his tools. He's learned how to overcome setbacks, how to improvise, 
how to see the problem from a new perspective. I mean, these are just life lessons that you learn when you go trying to do something that's difficult. And that's what this father now has in his own hip pocket, so to speak. He has a bunch of life lessons that he's learned. And now more than anything else, what he wants to do is share those lessons with his young son. And on this particular day, he puts on his work clothes, which everyone in the family knows means dad's going to the garage. And he walks through the kitchen where the son is playing and he announces loudly so that he would make sure his son would hear him. I'm going to spend some time in the garage this afternoon. I sure could use some help. And then he waits. Now, what does the father expect to see happen or what does he hope to see happen next? Obviously, he hopes that young son will just drop what he's doing and jump up and say, oh, oh, dad, can I help? Can I help? He wants his son to recognize the signs of his father at work. The clothes, the determined look, the walk to the garage. Oh, I need some help. Anybody coming with me? He wants his son to see those things. And when his son sees them and recognizes them, it's a joy to the father's heart. Now, the son, for his part, he could ignore those signs, right? And sometimes they do. They're too interested in in what they're doing. Or, maybe even worse, they could recognize the signs but not want to join in. In either case, the father's work in that garage, it's going to get done. But what a shame that the son would lose an opportunity to join with his father. Because if he doesn't, he'll never learn those life lessons through the work that his father could show him and that his father was prepared to teach him. And as a result, you know, you never know how something like that turns out over the life of a kid. But, you know, those kinds of things tend to repeat. And if they repeat enough, you end up with a child that foregoes some of the maturing and some of the growth that those opportunities are intended to provide. And that's exactly what's at stake for us as sons of our father who is in heaven when he goes out of his way to announce his work, even as it's taking place around us. And we either are not taught in the Word of God well enough to see the signs, or even worse, we know them, but we don't want to follow. And if we're willing to be honest about this, we know we recognize the Father's work at times, and we just don't jump to it. We don't get involved. We stay where we were. We, we see the telltale signs, but we tell ourselves it's not for us right now. And I'll tell you how I see it. God steps into my life in many ways uh, every day making announcements that his work is at hand and inviting me to participate and waiting to see what I will do. Sometimes he speaks through the ways we expect, church announcements, church appeals for help, mission trips, volunteer opportunities, other ways we can serve. Those things are sort of the obvious, and even then we don't always respond. But what about a job change or a family tragedy or an illness? Or maybe it's a coworker or a friend who walks up and asks for a piece of advice or wants to tell us a story. Or maybe it's a prayer request we happen to see on the weekly prayer list. Or maybe it's just literally a knock at the door. The two knocks I like to hear most often are Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Think about it. Where else do you see an unbeliever coming to your door asking to talk about the gospel? If that's not the easiest mission opportunity in the world, I don't know what is. You know, you just have to answer the door and talk to them. Usually after about two hours, they find a way to get out. But, and now they don't come anymore. But, but that is, in your life and in my life, that is the equivalent of you standing next to the Lord while His messengers have gone out to do their work. 
And he's sitting there asking us to step into the work he just revealed. When we see these opportunities, we can stay silent or we can jump in. The choice is ours and so are the blessings. Next time I'm here, two weeks from now, when we pick this study up again, we're going to go now into the story of what Abraham is about to watch God do. And we're going to watch as God brings Abraham into the work first and primarily through prayer, through intercession. And then at the end of it, we'll watch how God uses this to train him up to understand the character and the nature of God more fully so that he can serve him more fully. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, your work, Father, never ends. You, you tell us in your, in your own word, Father, that the Son has told us that the Father is always at work and that the Son is always working with him. And that now by the Spirit we have been invited to join in that same work. I ask, Father, that more than anything else, today from what we've been taught, that you would give this body, Oak Hill Bible Church, the kind of heart that wants to join in, that doesn't need to make its own plans, doesn't need to design its own solutions. We know that the Spirit, Father, can do that much better than we can. But that we would simply have a heart to join in, to do at whatever it is you would call us to do, whatever you would desire to show us, in the little things or in the big things, in the quiet places and in the public places. And that we would have a heart to do it, Father, not so that others would see us doing it, not that we would get some kind of earthly credit for it. For as you tell us, Father, if that's our goal, then we will receive what we've sought and we'll receive it here alone. That's not the heart we want, Father. We want a heart that wants to serve you with eternal gain and to do it for your glory. And we may not be mighty in number and we may not have the the best-looking buildings, and we may not have all the many things the world seeks. But I take encouragement in that, Father, because you tell us that you work best when you work with the weakest. Well, here we are, Father. Take this small and weak group and do mighty things. Let us be a voice for the gospel into the city that we serve. Let us be the source of truth and light and encouragement to one another in this body. And let us wait in readiness for your, Lord, for your Son's return, for our Lord's return so that we would be pleasing to Him in His day. I pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.